I would like to begin by acknowledging that I am accessing this Zoom meeting on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and pay my respect to Elders past, present and future. And I extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples herein or listening to this, this Zoom podcast today. Welcome to Sydney University Public Health Society's Public Health Matters series. Public Health Matters is a podcast aimed at drawing attention to important public health issues, especially those pertinent to COVID-19. My name's Josh and I'm here with Isabel. Together we'll be co-hosting today's episode, The Ethics of Quarantine. Isabel, what's in store for the show? So we have a really fun and interesting show planned for you today. Um, We're talking about ethics of quarantine and namely how we think about some of the many ethical dilemmas posed by quarantine. Um, I think it's a very hot topic for academics and lay people alike. Uh, Now we are extremely humbled to today be joined by Dr. Diego Silva, lecturer in bioethics at Sydney Health Ethics within the Sydney School of Public Health. He holds a PhD in public health ethics from the University of Toronto, and his research interests are around infectious disease ethics, um, primarily for tuberculosis. So how are you today, Diego? Yeah, I'm really well. It's um, a very lofty introduction to live up to. I I, I hope I can do so. (laughs) Um, Apologies, I guess. Uh, Is there anything (laughs) you wanted to add before we uh, start? You don't don't have to apologize. You're not Canadian, (laughs) right? You're like Australian or something. So that's all right. Don't don't feel the need to apologize. Yeah. (laughs) The previous intro was longer, actually. Actually. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's get we stuck with that one. That's good. So no pressure. (laughs) Diego, could you give us a quick overview of your research? Yeah, sure. So, um, so my background academically is in uh, philosophy, um, as well as sort of public health, and uh, broadly speaking, sort of social science methods. So much of my research in terms of the approach that I take to questions around ethics tends to be sort of double barreled. One is with regards to qualitative research that I do. Um, and uh, usually, well, not usually, those are empirical descriptive questions. And then I'm also interested in normative questions. So that is those things that I will you know, pontificate on and argue in favor of a particular conclusion. So I do that in the, with a guise towards public health ethics, broadly speaking, but also sort of infectious diseases. Um, a lot of work on tuberculosis, um, but uh, I kind of feel like a bit of an ambulance chaser because COVID-19 is really good for business on my end of things. So, um, so yeah, so that's, that's, the, that's the gist. Are there any parallels that can be drawn between COVID-19 and tuberculosis? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, there's a, there's a slew of differences. Obviously, one's bacterial, the other one's viral. Um, you know, tuberculosis is very, very old. Um, talking about millennia in terms of finding the tuberculosis bacteria in, in mummified bodies, um, whereas COVID is obviously very new, um, or particularly this strain of the coronavirus. Um, I think one of the key similarities has to do with who's affected by tuberculosis. So it tends to be people who are political, socially, economically marginalized. And so what I mean by that is, is that people who, there's a power imbalance there between you know, two groups, X and Y, and that power imbalance is uh, created through um, either negligence or through 
uh, intentional uh, economic setups um, that exist or have existed for a long time. I think one of the big differences though is that there's a lot of attention being paid to COVID incorrectly. So it is an unbelievably scary um, illness in part because you know there isn't herd immunity to it. There's no sort of general immunity. Anybody can get it. On the other hand, tuberculosis is a disease that primarily overwhelmingly affects um, the poor, the economically poor. And so we see that in terms of the death rates. So um, on average, uh, globally, um, the average uh, fatality rate for TB is just under 4,000 or around 4,000. Whereas for COVID, we've been clip, you know, our, we've been at a rate of about uh, 2,000. Um, and so that's not to say that TB is twice as more important or, or double, you know, tw twice as important as uh, COVID, but it is to sort of shine a spotlight on TB and, and wonder why is it that TB is ignored? Wow, so nearly twice as many deaths per day as COVID. Why is the death rate so high? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a Friday afternoon, so, you know, I'll be a little more, uh, little more forthright. It's because, you know, I think we generally don't care about poor people. Um, you know, we, in, in, you know, in our day-to-day -day lives, we are preoccupied with that which is around us. Um, and TB is a disease that spreads slowly. Uh, you need prolonged um, exposure to somebody with tuberculosis and close quarters, uh, poor um, air circulation, little sunlight for it to transfer, to, to, to become uh, transmitted, that's the word. And so, yeah, so people are, who are of socio lowest socioeconomic status are the ones that are affected. And, and I think that, uh, you know, we just don't care um, because it doesn't affect the, the upper middle, you know, the middle class, upper middle class and the rich. Um, certainly there is a racial disparity in a lot of high income countries. So, uh, in Australia or, you know, Canada, where I'm from, um, it's overwhelmingly persons who are new to the country, uh, migrants who, uh, either show up with latent tuberculosis or, uh, get tuberculosis when they're arrived here, um, and indigenous or aboriginal people, uh, to a much more disproportionate number. Um, so for example, uh, within Canada, you have about the rate of TB about, um, sorry, the, the percentage of population, um, who have TB about 20% there, thereabouts are persons who are indigenous. Meanwhile, uh, indigenous Canadians represent less than 5%, 4% of the total Canadian population. Um, so there's obviously racial and ethnic disparities there as well. Wow, a huge disparity. Let's hope we can make some progress there. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I hope so. I hope so. Brilliant. Well, thank you for that. We're going to move into the first topic for today's show. As you know, since the latter half of March, the state government has rolled out coercive policies imposing restrictions on gathering, movement, air travel, just to name a few. What are the ethical dimensions of quarantine? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, there's certainly multiple when we think about quarantine and other coercive measures like quarantine, um, the various social distancing or physical distancing measures that have been invoked by the government of Australia and then the state governments as well, including that in New South Wales, we need to think about why it's being, you know, why are they being rolled out? Um, and what is the context in which they're being rolled out? 
So the context is, is that we live, broadly speaking, with um, a view towards liberty, or we hold people's freedoms of movement, um, of choice to be paramount in countries like Australia. And so the move to remove that, um, the efforts to remove that uh, freedom of movement um, isn't taken lightly, I would say, by anyone, certainly by you know, colleagues in public health, but it's done so as a last resort in order to arrest the spread of the disease. And so what you have is a curtailment of a right for the protection of the broader population. Um, the protection of, in this case, in the case of COVID, um, marginalized, uh, pardon me, uh, vulnerable populations. So primarily the elderly, those with comorbidities, immunocompromised individuals. Um, we do it also, obviously, to, uh, so I think as everyone listening to this podcast knows, sort of the, the, the flatten the curve, right? So the idea is, is that, you know, we're, we're going to have to reach herd immunity in one capacity or another. Um, what you're trying to do is not overwhelm the health system uh, in order to allow the health system to best serve the population, to best serve the community. So there's a bit of a symbiotic relationship there. Um, and so I think that, you know, protection of vulnerable populations, the, the trying to reduce the impact on the healthcare system, um, you know, you can generally group those under the category of trying to um, uh, protect people from harm. And I think from an ethics point of view, that's what you're trying to do is to protect people from physical harm. Um, and then obviously there's a cost associated to that, right? And I think that, you know, um, we have issues like uh, the economic hit, so high unemployment rates. Um, we have things like, uh, you know, uh, not only people losing their jobs, but also just the tedium, issues with mental health, issues with increased rates of domestic abuse in, you know, during times when people are socially isolated in their homes. So it's, again, not done lightly. Um, you know, I, I honestly can't remember this ever happening in the history of public health, um, not even during the Spanish flu of, you know, uh, 1918, 1919. So, um, so I would say it's, in general, that's, that's sort of some of the, the, the basic ethics things that we're looking at. And do you think we've got the balance right between liberty and protecting people from harm? Yeah, I, I think we have, generally speaking. So I think one of the things that's really important to remember is that we don't, as individuals, we don't exist on an island. I mean, you know, we do literally in Australia, but uh, figuratively, we don't exist on an island. And so um, we're relational creatures, which is part of the reason that we're suffering so much being in physical isolation. But that also means that what's good for the community is, generally speaking, um, with exceptions, but generally speaking, it's good for the individual. So you want a strong community, you want community health, you want population level health um, in order to promote the individual's well-being. So there's a really interesting paper back from, uh, I believe it was 2016, uh, 1516 by uh, James Wilson 
uh, colleague of mine at University College London who wrote a paper called uh, The Right to P Public Health. And, you know, he makes this argument that, you know, if you take an interests approach, public health is there to actually promote an individual's interest and well-being. And so I think that, you know, that's a bit of an esoteric sort of answer to your question, but I, I think that given the novelty of COVID, given the speed at which it moves, and given that we still, I mean, you know, we know more now than we did in the beginning of March, but we still know very little. Um, we're dealing with a sort of an unknown beast. And in light of that, I think that um, it's, you know, the precautionary measures that we've taken are, are the correct one. Um, so I think what, what is interesting is, uh, you know, the, the three-step plan for opening up the society and economy that um, uh, you know, uh, Prime Minister Morrison rolled out today, um, we'll, we'll see how sort of the, the gently going into more and more social or more and more physical contact, um, what that will mean in terms of the numbers and, you know, how long can we, you know, how long each step is going to take. And I, I think one of the things that I appreciate about what he and his um, ministers and, and health officials said is that, you know, we have a sense of what step one will look like, um, but step two and then step three are much more uh, in the fog. And that makes sense. And, and I appreciate the not over, um, over promising, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, di I'm digressing now, but yeah, I, I think generally speaking, the, the balance was struck. Thank you. Now I'll throw it over to Isabel for our next question. Yeah, so along the lines of what we've already kind of been, you've already been discussing, I think it's also interesting to talk about this narrative, which you've already kind of touched on, but this narrative, why are we isolating or do we have a duty or a responsibility to isolate or in quarantine? So for example, say I myself am a relatively healthy young person who um, isn't necessarily going to be affected worse by the effects of COVID. So for example, I don't have an autoimmune disease or I'm not elderly. Um, so essentially I could go out, live my life. Um, and if I get COVID-19, I'm likely going to recover. But I guess from an ethical or ethics standpoint, I guess, how would you kind of respond to this narrative? of Why am I isolating for the sake of others? Um, and is there kind of an element of responsibility in that? Yeah, so I think that, um, and you know, I think that's a really fair question to ask because I think that we underestimate the level of um, connectivity, is that a word? Connection uh, between ourselves and people that we don't see. So, um, so the, 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 the sort of the, the short answer to your question is the responsibility to remain in isolation is there um, because we are, again, social animals in what is good for us a lot of it is derived by working together with others to promote public or common goods and i think that you can't you know you can't stand with uh you know the the idea of solidarity comes up a lot right the the standing with somebody else um for the betterment of, of a society well, you know, if you're going to do that during the good times, you got to do that during the bad times, right? Um, so one of the 
one of the ideas that's often discussed in 20th century, it predates 20th century, but 20th century political philosophy is this idea of the social contract. This idea of we're all in contract with each other and with the government, the government's in contract with us. So what are the terms of that contract, right? And um, it's kind of like a marriage contract, right? You're there in, in sickness and in health. And I think that, you know, right now we're in, we're in sickness and, you know, you know, don't be an idiot, you know, stand, stand with your fellow citizen. So it's, it's really tempting to, 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 it's really tempting to say, listen, this isn't going to affect me. Um, perhaps I don't have grandparents or my, you know, they're younger or they're not, you know, comorbid and stuff. They don't have comorbidities relatively safe. Yeah, but that's not the point, right? It's, it's the, the fact of the matter is, is that our lives are intertwined. And because of that, you know, uh, even if you were to take, again, a very strong view about the importance of liberty, you know, and I think I said this before, you know, your liberty doesn't exist in the vacuum. It exists because uh, those who came before you were able to um, create that and you have a responsibility to um, maintain it, make it better, improve it. Um, so I would say, yeah, I, I, I would say that therein lies the, the, the seat of the responsibility. Sounds like the law of reciprocity is certainly at play here. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so the idea of reciprocity is really interesting. So um, in a sentence, reciprocity means that you're returning good for good received and that you're trying to, um, there's restitution for wrongs committed. So um, what does this mean in practice? It, it, in practice, it means that you need to, as an individual, participate in, in things that are good for the common for two reasons. So one is um, because it's good for you. So I think we've covered that. Um, you know, it's good for others. But also because the sacrifice of others needs to be, um, we need to support those who are making sacrifices and we need to, essentially, we owe a debt of gratitude. And so what do I mean by those two things? So if somebody is in isolation, so, you know, quarantine, you're suspected of, you know, quarantine, you've been exposed to the virus or the pathogen. Isolation means you have the pathogen. Um, uh, so, you know, those of us who are in quarantine or those of us who are uh, in isolation, uh, we're doing so for the betterment of everyone else. Um, it doesn't serve you directly, right? And so, um, so then the social supports need to be in place to incentivize individuals to support individuals to maintain isolation, to maintain quarantine. Um, you know, uh, because if you're in isolation and quarantine, you know, we, we think we have it bad, those of us who are, you know, stuck in our homes and our apartments. Um, but you can still go out to get groceries. You can still walk around. You know, we've never been, it's not like, you know, what's been going on in say Spain or Italy or other jurisdictions where you're not allowed out, period. Um, and so, uh, so for those of us, so the, for those individuals who have been in isolation, um, it's providing that sort of social support um, in the context of healthcare workers. So they're out there on the front lines 
um, we owe them an obli- you know, we owe them a duty to, you know, be on our best behavior so as to not make their jobs difficult because their jobs is to save us uh, or protect us. And likewise for, you know, um, you know, when you're at food works or at Woolies, you know, and you've got those, you know, they, they've taped the floor to sort of demarcate, you know, a meter and a half, you know, don't be an idiot. Just, you know, maintain the distance, right? You're there to protect not only yourself, but you're there to protect the people who are still stocking the shelves. Um, you know, cause one thing is an epidemic. Another is Armageddon. And, uh, you know, I would say that we'd all want to avoid the latter. So, um, I think reciprocity sort of, you know, has this sort of more philosophical dimension, but it plays out in a very real way. Yeah, and I think it's interesting as well to note that even people who aren't in isolation, they're just quarantining, they are also exposed, I guess, to certain harm. So, for example, as a result of quarantine, um, a lot of people have taken pay cuts or have lost their jobs. So, for example, the entire hospitality industry, which has essentially been either forced to close or be restricted to takeaway. Um, I guess this feeds back to the idea of are they then owed anything? And I guess we do have things like JobKeeper and JobSeeker to kind of compensate for that. But, um, but yeah. Yeah, so I think JobKeeper is a really interesting example, right? Um, it's not a matter of the government being really nice to us, right? Look, the government's being charitable. No, no. That's the government's job is to set up things like JobKeeper, right? That is why we pay our taxes, right? So I'm perfectly happy to give away a fair amount of my income um, because I like healthcare and I like social safety nets um, in general, but certainly in moments like these. And so I think that like, like, listen, no one likes going through what we're going through right now. Um, but the government's job is to implement policies that will cushion the blow, not out of the goodness of their hearts, but because actually that's the job of government. And um, what I think is really interesting is what are the various policies and cushions that the government rolls out and for whom, right? What's the, what are the arguments being rolled out? Um, you know, why are we protecting Qantas and not Virgin? Right? So there's, there's a whole slew of questions that I, I don't, I should say, I don't purport to have sort of opinions or any well-formed opinions on these topics, but, um, but I think that, you know, I, I think I've lost the thread, to be honest. Uh, I think that I think that you know that that um, you you can look at you, you can say that this is one giant act of reciprocity, but actually, I think the easier description is is that this is this is what government is set up to do. Yeah. We're just seeing it in the acute phase, whereas normally it functions in the background. So when we think about the social contract, this is the government's part of the deal. It's certainly one of the government's part of the deal, right? And this is why we, yeah, I mean, certainly it is. Um, It is the government's responsibility. You know, we say that, you know, the the fancy term is we say, you know, they're the legitimate actors, 
you know, they have the legitimate, you know, they're in the position to roll out these provisions, um, you know, which is why um, large corporations say um, who perhaps have owners who are able to cushion blows, um, you know, there they have sort of a, a, a quote unquote choice, at least sort of legally and perhaps politically. Although morally, I would say that they're in a position to, you know, better support their workers. But the government doesn't even have that choice to make. This is part of that social contract. Um, again, it's not out of the goodness of their hearts. Uh, there, is a, there is an element of self-interest. If they don't do JobKeeper, um, there's nothing to recover. Um, but, you know, I, I think that, again, this is, this is I, the, 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 bringing back the notion of social contract is absolutely critical, yeah. Great. So let's move on to our next topic. Other countries seem to be taking a very different approach. Sweden's one that stands out, where they're actually seeking or striving for herd immunity. So a very different application of the harm principle. What do you make of this? Right. So, um, so have you guys seen the movie Midsummer? No. Okay. So, uh, um, it's a horror movie that takes place in Sweden. Um, and I'm not going to give away the plot, but, uh, every time I read about Sweden, Sweden reminds me of this Swedish horror movie called, uh, Midsummer. Anyways, for those of you who have actually uh, seen this movie, you'll know what I mean. Um, so, and you know, Josh and Isabel, I, I highly recommend it. It's actually, sorry, let me take a step back. It's an atrocious movie. It's terrible. <laughs> but it's kind of funny it's so bad. Um, and yes, it does remind me of Sweden. So, uh, I don't think I brought up the harm principle. So, let me sort of backtrack and kind of explain sure. what I mean by the harm principle. So, the harm principle... Um, is this idea that you're free to do X so long as you're not harming other people. Um, and so during an infection, the idea is, is that if you're infectious uh, with a respiratory illness, we'll put you in isolation or we'll ask you to stay in isolation so as to protect other people and not harm other people. So it's implicit to that first question that you asked. So um, I would say how different countries deal with the idea of harm and isolation and who bears the brunt of the harm is quite fascinating. So yeah, we need herd immunity and either we're going to get herd immunity by virtue of the passage of time and people just slowly becoming infected, uh, you know, and hopefully, you know, you have high rates of asymptomatic or mild cases, um, or you have a vaccine. So if you go the first route and allow nature to take its course, there's two ways of doing it, accelerated or decelerated. And Sweden has done, I wouldn't say they've accelerated it, but they've certainly not decelerated it um, like most other countries in the world. So they have made a choice um, to be okay with fatality rates that far, far outstrip any of the Scandinavian countries that, you know, uh, you know, pound for pound, as they say in boxing is, is, is a pretty gnarly rate. So the flip side is, is that there's been some things that I've read. Uh, some of the epidemiologists in, in Sweden are saying that they've already have about 20%. This was about a week or so ago. 
they already have 20% herd immunity. Um, if that's the case, that's great, um, but it's on the back of the elderly. And it's on the back of those who are immunocompromised and have comorbidities. So, you know, the, the, Swe the Swedish government has acted well within its jurisdiction, but well within its sovereignty, and it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's acted in a legitimate fashion. Um, but that's a hell of a trade-off to make. And um, it's not clear to me that, it's not clear to me that that would have been my first choice. Um, but, um, but hey, they're, they're probably ahead of everyone else in terms of trying to get to that magic number of 60% uh, infection in the population. Right, so herd immunity is the goal. Well, herd immunity, herd immunity is where we need to get to. Yeah. Right. So, so the only way life will go back to normal, the the normal that everyone wants, or whatever the new normal wants, you know, whatever sorry, whatever the new normal becomes, um, it's going to only happen when we have herd immunity and, uh, you know, the rate of infection is below a reproduction rate, well below one. Um, right. Until the R naught is well below one. Um, you know, you're 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 going to be in this position where you're you're constantly struggling with with the virus, and that only comes one of two ways: either through the natural course of events or a vaccine. So, a greater value being placed on liberty as opposed to harm or potential harm. Yeah. So, I think I think what's really interesting about that is is that they have a different calculus as to where to place the harm. Okay. So. So look, look, no no one's coming out of this unscathed. So it depends on, in a part, it depends on how you want to distribute the harm. Yeah. And um, we're seeing in the United States, for example, their rates are not decreasing. They're either steady state or increasing. And states are either already opening up within the United States or are about to. And we have the president of the United States quite adamant that the economy needs to be, I can't remember how he stated it, saved or it needs to go back to what it was two months ago so on and so forth that's a value choice that you're making um you know is the value is the is the trade-off lives versus the economy i actually think that's a little bit unfair because these two things are so interlinked but i the, so the the, the way i would re-describe it is where are you placing the brunt of the burden um and you might say that, look, you know, overall, more Swedes are going to be less economically impacted, say, have less very real mental health issues, very real issues around um, uh, confinement, domestic abuse, all the stuff that we talked about before. Um, that's going to be much more, you know, that's going to happen at a much smaller rate. Um, so that's a good thing. That's, and, and that's, and that's not economic, right? So not all the gains are necessarily economic. It might also mean that other people are able to get to hospital. You have elective surgeries, whatever the case might be. I'm, I'm, I'm um, I, I should say, I don't know about the elective surgery if that's going on in Sweden or not. Um, so this isn't to say that I don't think like the Swedes are mad or anything of that sort. That's, that's not the, that's not my point. My, my point is, is again, where do you put the brunt of the harm? So I guess changing pace a little, one of the things that we've kind of touched on and you kind of 
briefly mentioned this with relation to tuberculosis before, but in the sense of, I guess, how it's how COVID is disproportionately affecting um, uh, uh, people. So, for example, uh, social distancing or I guess physical distancing. One of the it's one of the key messages coming out of like talk around COVID. But although it doesn't necessarily apply to those living in your own household, I think it's worth mentioning that there is an issue where in some households, people are living in close quarters or they don't have the luxury, I guess, to distance themselves from others in their home. And that in this sense, it does kind of place these people at somewhat of a disadvantage compared to those who can distance from others in their own homes. And I guess kind of speaking to that idea of, uh, how you talked about it with tuberculosis before, um, how is, um, could you kind of speak to this idea of how disadvantage plays out in, uh, sorry, out in the COVID-19 era, I guess, with these distancing orders? So the question is, what are the ill effects on marginalized populations of, of social distancing? Yeah, pretty much. Okay. Yeah, so, um, so I think it's multifactorial, like obviously, um, I think that's sort of a truism, but um, you know, first of all, you're assuming people who have access to housing in the first place. That's not the case, right? Um, you assume that people who are living, uh, who do have shelter, have the means by which to subsist by themselves. Not always the case. So one of the big issues that we're seeing are, for example, um, access to protective, personal protective equipment for individuals who work uh, with persons with disabilities. And so, you know, that's an example where, um, you know, it's not business as usual, but it doesn't mean you're stuck in your home. It means that you don't get the care that you need. And so I think that, um, I think certainly there are people who are marginalized or vulnerable that ha will face additional burdens. Um, and so I guess this goes back to this question that we were talking about earlier, which is sort of where, yeah, we have things like JobKeeper, it's, it's the government supporting its population. You know, so that's fantastic. So what are we doing sort of for the smaller subpopulations, those who are particu you know, particularly marginalized and vulnerable? So, um, so certainly, you know, there have been, um, uh, you know, efforts to, for example, uh, this is just, off the top of my head, but I know that like in Western Australia, they were housing people who were homeless in, in hotels and, and motels and stuff like that. Um, ones who were, I guess, particularly vulnerable to, um, susceptible to COVID. So that's, that's fantastic. That's a really good thing, right? So, so there are sort of those efforts being made and I would, you know, applaud those sorts of things that we need to do and, and think about that much more. Um, in terms of individuals not being able to isolate within a, you know, within a home. Yeah. I mean, you know, it might be easier if you're talking about a, a family, um, you know, but if you're with flatmates, right. Um, who you, you know, know or don't know to various degrees, you know, what then, um, do you, you know, it's not like you're going to ask them their whereabouts all the time. Um, even if you're married, it's not like you're gonna ask about whereabouts all the time. So there is an element of risk, right? Um, so the best you can do is try to minimize that risk. Um, um, but you know, the, there's, there's again, all these sort of little issues that come up. So, you know, 
Um, I don't know if you guys saw the other day in the news, there was a place, I think, out in Surrey Hills or something that was up for rent that had the bathroom in the kitchen. That was ridiculous, yeah. You know what I mean? And so, you know, you know, there's one thing being in social isolation, you know, in a nice little house in, in Newtown that's got a you know, small little, you know, backyard, but I got a backyard, you know, I got fresh air, I got a windows open. It's vastly different if, you know, you got to go to the bathroom where your fridge is. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's going to play out differently. And I think that that's, you know, if, if we, we talk about what are the silver linings, although that's kind of a weird way to put it, but like, you know, what are the good things that can potentially come from COVID? And I think a lot of it has to do with environmental issues, and that's fantastic. Um, I think those of us in Australia who went through the bushfires, which seems like a million years ago now, um, you know, I, th I think it's great that we're traveling less as much as it pains me because I love to travel. It's a good thing that there's less air travel. And I think the other thing is, is, you know, another potential silver lining is that we're actually learning, I think, for the first time, I think, in ever in my life, where there's public debate about how people live and, and where are people housed and how are people housed and how does, you know, um, people asking the question about, well, hey, interesting, you know, the government can or can't do things, um, yet when things go pear-shape, all of a sudden the government can do a lot of things that it usually says it can't. Um, so I think that there's, there's a slew of questions being asked about social and economic policy that I think to date haven't been asked in a lot of sort of popular media. How far that travels, does it travel in the Murdoch circles? I'm not entirely sure, you know. Um, but at least it's, it's there more than it was, I would say, three months ago. Okay, great. Well, thanks, Diego. Uh, yeah, pleasure. It's a Friday afternoon. Yeah, thanks very much for having me. It was a lot of fun. Well, that's it for today's uh, episode of Public Health Matters. I think ethics uh, around quarantine is um, an issue which is definitely pertinent today with the COVID-19 era, I guess. And today's discussion has provided great insight into how we should start thinking of it or rationalizing it. And I just want to thank everyone for listening and a massive thank you to you, Dr. Diego Silva, for joining us today. Yeah, thanks a lot. Lots of fun. Thanks, Diego.